0: Hi there, this is John McGannon from Wild Eats Enterprises, and you're tuned into the RNA Outdoors podcast.
1: To the RNA Outdoors podcast, where expert advice becomes real results. At RNA, we are public land DIY conservationists that like to share our passion for the outdoors. So join us and our team as we interview professionals in the industry to share insight knowledge that helps make hunters and anglers more successful.
0: John.
2: You, you probably need to have a little sip.
0: You might need a sip before you, you do think. it, you think? Just to, just to clear, the, clear the larynx. No, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a distraction
2: method. Yeah, I understand. He records everything. Everything. In, in so now, when you say everything. something funny, you think that was funny, but then that never makes it. But then you say something that's not funny, that makes it.
0: The blooper reel. The
1: blooper reel. Why would you say I record everything? I don't record everything.
2: Mm, that's not what my dad said.
0: As, as, <laughs> as, as he hit the record button, I noticed that. Yeah, you notice
1: that? All right, welcome hunters and anglers. You are tuned into the RNA Outdoors Podcast. I am your host, Lucas Paw. We are coming to you live from the Marriott Hotel in downtown Salt Lake City. Uh, For the Western Hunting uh, and Conservation Expo. So, really neat expo. Um, When you talk about probably one of the largest big game um, expos in the West, you won't find one better than this one. You've got folks from all over. uh, You know, we've got a lot of different outfitters from all over the world, but specifically, you know, what's neat about this expo, in my opinion, is that it is specific to Western hunting. So, I think that's neat and I think that's really cool and that's really why the reason why we're here today. So before we get started I'd be remiss not to talk to our title sponsor. So very fortunate to have Ripcord Aero Rest uh, as our corporate and uh, title sponsor. They are the number one bow hunters fall away rest on the market. They're based out of Dillon, Montana. Ripcord is a brand that bow hunters trust. Ripcord is best known for 100% full-time arrow containment in their drop dead brake system which eliminates launcher bounce back. The Ripcord Air Rest is well built and designed to last. It is precision machined from blocks of lightweight aluminum and features rounded edges and contoured surfaces for a finished professional look. Best of all, Ripcord is backed by their rock solid guarantee. If the original owner has a part break for any reason, it will be repaired or replaced at no charge. Check them out at ripcordarrowrest.com and all their social media feeds. Okay, so with that, we're going to get into our episode uh, this evening uh, what's kind of neat about this episode is, is um, you know, we're we're sharing in fellowship with friends. I've got a good opportunity to sit here uh, with my good friend Jason Quick, who's co-hosting tonight, who's been on many shows before and has shared a few drinks with me on a podcast in the past. So, Jason, uh, thanks for being here. Welcome. Ready to have some fun. And uh, even more importantly, um, we had planned uh, to to hook up with John McGannon of Wild Eats Enterprises who uh, is referred to as the chef from Pacifica, from what we just heard here recently. But um, <laughs> this is a neat podcast for me because John and, and Jason have been friends uh, for many years, and uh, we were able to hook up uh, here at the show and, and sit down with John and really talk about his passion for for cooking wild game. It's a little bit different of a podcast for us because we traditionally have not had, you know, a chef on the podcast. But what I think what's interesting is is, after reading some of John's publications, there's a lot that you can learn in not only preparing but also uh, cooking wild game. So, well, well, Lucas, I could add to that.
2: John John is just more than a chef; he is also a hunter. And let me tell you, he's got a desert ram from California that is just phenomenal. And, uh, and you know, I yell at him for not shooting a monster buck in Colorado that another friend of ours shot. But maybe that's for a different podcast. So. Well, that could come out, we too. We won't
1: write him too hard for that one. No, I mean, we, you know, we're we sticking to kind of a, a chef script here, but that doesn't mean we can't talk about some of John's adventures, which I've seen uh, privy to some of the, the trophies and some of the animals that he's taken and pretty remarkable adventures, I'm sure, that have come out of that. So. Um, you know, without any further ado, um, I'd like to welcome, uh, John McGannon with Wild Eats Enterprises, the RNA
0: Outdoors podcast. Welcome, John. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you very much for having me. And, uh, Jason, great to see you as always. The chef from Pacifica. The chef? The chef, yeah. Via uh, New York City. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs)
2: New York City.
1: Exactly. So so grassroots, I'm sure we'll get to that. So to kick off the podcast, John, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to go through a series of questions. We call it the rapid fire Q&A. So really a lot of this is around just getting to know you a little better. It kind of softens the tone of the podcast. It also kind of breaks the ice a little bit. but it gives us an opportunity to, to ask you some questions and, and you provide answers. So it's not time, so we'll go through and we'll ask the questions uh, and ask that uh, you provide us uh, an answer to those. So we'll go ahead and kick it off. So when you're preparing Wild Game, would you rather use a dry rub or a wet rub? A uh, dry rub. Would you rather use a smoker or a slow cooker? Smoker. Would you rather use a barbecue or an oven?
0: Barbecue. Bacon or butter? Mm, that's a tough one. Bacon is so overused, but I have to go bacon. Jason, I know you would attest oh, to bacon. A,
2: but butter, I mean, come on. <laughs> Everything goes better with butter. Today. How, about, how about duck fat? Oh, uh, well, you know. Rendered, I knew that would be rend, a tough one.
0: duck fat. Yeah, no, that's a, the, the whole... Because, okay, we can elaborate yes. on that a little bit. Because when dealing with wild game, you have such little fat. The fat that you actually choose is very relevant as to... The significance of the final dish. So, uh, I just did a I just did a, a dinner party at a, um, a duck club in uh, in the Delta in California, and I, I didn't have any duck to use for them, but I did have duck fat. So I made these little potato galettes that were fried in duck fat, and oh, it was quite sounds de- quite decadent. <laughs> Excellent. We <laughs> had duck the other night,
1: but you know yeah. what is wrapped in. It was
0: wrapped in no, bacon. No, don't tell me that. Don't. See, that's why I, I okay, I changed, I changed back to butter. <laughs> okay, so we're on butter. Okay, moving on. Would you rather have wine or bourbon? Well, considering our situation currently, I will have to go with the latter bourbon. Excellent.
1: Bratwurst or summer sausage? Uh, bratwurst. Bear or wild boar? Well, you got to go boar. Elk or venison? Hmm. You got to go elk. Bison or moose? Uh, moose. Salt or pepper? Pepper. Sweet or sour? Sour. Lemon or lime? Lime. Breakfast, lunch, or dinner? All. Would you rather hunt or would you rather cook?
0: Ah, see, that's, I'm glad you left that to the last. That's the last one? Because that's, um. His two passions in life. My two passions in life. Yeah, I've been one of the fortunate people in life to be able to bridge my two passions. And so if I didn't hunt. Then I wouldn't be able to cook what I really have a true passion for. So I would have to say hunt.
2: Very cool. Hunt to cook. Man, I love it. That could be like could one be of a his new, new Yeah, that
1: could be. Yeah. So interesting. When I asked there was a little hesitation on elk or venison. What what had you on the fence there? Because I know I, I know my choice is elk because I predominantly hunt elk <laughs> and I, I really enjoy venison, but is there a connection to venison that you have?
0: Um, Being in, in well, the California, I was originally. I'm from back in New York, mm-hmm. and so my first hunting experiences were apple-fed whitetails in upstate New York, and um, and then I moved. I moved out out west in in the early '80s, and uh, was exposed to elk in Colorado. And but then, from a culinary perspective, um, you are what you eat. So elk are grazers deer or browsers. Generally speaking, rut excluded in in other circumstances, the texture of elk versus the texture of deer is very different. And it has to do with what it is that they actually eat. And and the same could be said for the bison versus the moose. Okay, the, the texture of moose meat, they're eating aquatic plant life, which is very subtle bison are eating forbs and, and, you know, varied grains out on the, on the, on the, the flatlands. So their the meat, the texture of that meat, when you're, when you're discussing, you know, the minute differences between all four of those mm-hmm. uh, species of, uh, of meat, um, that, that's why I would, I would choose that, but, uh, choose elk. Yeah. I was, I was, I've also been a, a member of the, uh, a life member of the Elk Foundation, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, since 1987, and uh, currently write for their Bugle magazine with my uh, Carnivores Kitchen uh, articles. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, I have a, I have a. You have a connection. Though. I have a connection with with the yeah. with the and and they're just and they're all. Yeah, how could anybody choose? You know, I'll take all four. Yeah,
2: <laughs> butter, yeah. bacon, elk, no, venison, no, 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 moose. Not, not those
0: four. <laughs> oh, the, I'm sorry. The, the elk, venison, bison. <laughs> and uh, and moose. Well, I would say
1: Jason always invites me to dinner quite often and typically whatever we have usually bacon is one of the four food groups. So the other <laughs> night he invited me <laughs> up, we had elk steaks with bacon. We had some duck that they had taken with bacon. And then recently you had dinner the other night and what was it? What did you have with that?
2: We had pheasant
0: and bacon. I mean, come <laughs> <Okay>. on. Bacon <laughs> goes with eggs.
2: I know but it also <laughs> goes with all the other food yeah groups.
0: Yeah, well, yeah well let those other food groups taste for what their real values are
2: well'll I'll give John that and I have to give John kudos on this because we met geez, oh, cremini we do have gray hair so we met probably 15 20 years ago
0: <clears throat> and at least
2: yeah at least oh God John yeah at least um, and one of the things that As a young man growing up, my mom would cook for us all the time. And once again, mom was a good cook. Oh, my God. Duck, horrible experience. Deer, just wildly crazy bad flavors. And, you know, of course, when I met John, I was kind of like enthralled with his ability to take stuff that my experience normally wasn't that good with and turn it into... Wow, that was frigging amazing. And uh, the one thing that he taught me, which really, I think, turned my whole wild game cooking career around, which everybody in my neighborhood now knows me as the guy that's around the barbecue cooking forum.
0: With the bacon.
2: With bacon, with <laughs> everything. Bacon, you know, <laughs> I mean, bacon's just been a theme lately, but uh, but... Really, it was the dry aging process, and I think we're probably going to get into that here but we will yeah, thank you john for for enlightening me to the you know take your meat out, put it in the refrigerator, make sure it doesn't change temperatures crazy drastic, let it release, get all the blood out, and once all the blood's out, then it's ready to go
0: you well know? it's kind of it's kind of interesting because. The guys, the same guys who hang their deer for 10 days and age their elk for 14 want to eat their duck an hour after they shoot them. And what we have to do, is uh, the the finest restaurants in the world dry age their beef for 21 days, which is complete and utter overkill because these are incredibly underdeveloped muscle systems. When was the last time you saw a a heifer running up and down a 10,000 foot mountain? Never. Never. Okay. So in order to maximize the culinary potential of that piece of meat, we have, we have just, we've figured out that a dry aging process helps break down the fiber structure of whatever muscle s- systems are in place and, and concentrates all those flavors. Well, in terms of the domestic animals, that is complete and utter overkill. But it's the only true natural way that you can break down the high-intensified a muscle structure of these Olympic athletes. Okay, there's a thing with waterfowl. There's a there's a thing called reoxygenation. It's what allows that animal to fly at twenty thousand feet for a hundred miles at a time. It has literally twice the amount of capillary blood in its in its muscle systems than does a land animal. This excess blood carries oxygen to its heart and lungs and allows it to do what it does. Really good for the ducks and the geese. Not so good for us. Because the capillary blood that's inside of our systems is basically the broken down byproduct of whatever you consume. So if you're a duck or a goose eating aquatic plant life out of the bottom of a muddy slough, and then somebody harvests you and then consumes that flesh in this overly saturated state, it's going to taste like the bottom of a muddy slough. Hence the mud liver flavor, which it has nothing to do with mud or liver. It has to do with this... Excessive amount of capillary blood. So simply putting it on a rack and letting it—you uh, know—if you got a, a mallard, for, for example, you you cut the backs out, put it on a on a little sheet pan with a stainless steel rack inside of a refrigerator. It all has to be done under forty degrees, and and, and leave it in there for five to seven days. That meat will go from an eggplant purple color to the color of a piece of veal. And then you bone it out. You, want, you always want to do this on the bone, by the way. A lot of, a lot of guys cheat, and they just want to rip the breasts out. And you, once you do that, you cannot expose it to that kind of air for that extended period of time and have that piece of meat. You know, you're going to wind up cutting a quarter inch off the top, a quarter inch off the bottom, and then you're left with nothing. So you do it on the bone with the skin left on the top, and you let those two properties dry out. So then after you've gotten to your five or seven days, then you bone it out. And literally, that meat will go from an eggplant purple color to the color of a piece of veal. Then wow. you won't have to resort to the habanero teriyaki honey soy glaze, and and, and have, the, have the. I might uh,
2: resemble that in yeah. the past. And
0: a bacon? Did I say bacon? Okay, yeah. Did so we so add butter with that? So you won't you won't need that, and then and then you actually uh, are allowing this piece of meat to live up to its maximum potential. The sad part and the frustrating part that I've had. Uh, in the last 22 years and, and once I established Wild Eats, and that's after 20 years of being in the restaurant business, is is that 90% of especially waterfowlers um, go out and never experience the maximum culinary potential of what it is that they harvest. It's all done, you know, you soak it in the XYZ baking soda salt solution, and then you cover it up with, like I said, the, the habanero teriyaki honey sake soy glaze <laughs> slash bacon, thing and so you're covering up, you know, this this wound. Well, my philosophy has always been let's heal the wound and throw the band-aid out. And then then you don't then you know then you know the breasts of a bird are the equivalent to the back straps or the rib eyes of a of a four legged animal. And hot and fast for the tender cuts, slow and wet for the tough cuts. And let it let it actually live up to its potential. That's a great segue into
1: kind of getting into some of our topics. So with that, John, give us a little bit of your I guess your grassroots background. I mean, go back, let's go back. How many X amount of years? Where did your passion for cooking come from? Was it something that, you know, your mom cooked at home and it was terrible and you couldn't stand it? Or did you have a great experience at home or what what made you turn into what you are today? Was there was there a pivotal time? Well,
0: yeah, there was and it and it took it took me probably 35 years to figure out why my grandmother's Heinz ketchup tasted better than anybody else's and it had absolutely nothing to do with that Heinz ketchup um I'm the I'm the eldest of 5 in my family and and we were living in the Bronx, New York and uh, my grandmother was a widow and uh she she would take me to her house cuz I have I have my next two siblings are like within 2 years so we were we were like five people in this one in one bedroom apartment. And so grandma took me and she loved to cook. She was she was from she was German. And everything she did took three days to make. It was the pickled sauerkraut and it was the stuffed cabbage, it was the, the the potato dumplings. And she had this little apartment that I thought was this huge thing. I'm a, I'm like two years old, three years old. And I would sit at the end of the table and she would prepare all these elaborate meals just for me and then sit at the other end of the table with a cup of tea and just sit there and watch me. And just the pleasure that she got of me just appreciating her efforts and what she was giving me was was so endearing. And, and And like I said, it took me 35 years to say, you know what, that that wow. ke- that ketchup had nothing to do with it it had mm. to do with the passion and the and the feedback and the love that she got um from from just sharing her culinary you know presentations to me and here i am a 2 or 3 year old kid and just going oh my god grandma this is the greatest and she would just sit there and ooh and ah and it just gave her so much pleasure and i carried that and i i i carry that to this day,
1: so yes, that's so, neat. That's, that's a neat story. So, Wild Eats Enterprises, um, give wh- us give us kind of a thirty foot thousand view. I mean, what is it? And, and
0: uh- well, very. That's that's a that's a very uh, no pun intended. So, Wild Eats Enterprises um, was born on an airplane flight coming back from Hong Kong in nineteen ninety five. Wow. And so I don't yeah. know, I don't know if you knew that, I but didn't know that. That, I just, that, that reference was what an, a, what an analogy. Yeah, tied that, together. that was, was kind of scary. Um, but yeah, I was, I was on my way back. Uh, I had, uh, been contracted to open up a restaurant in Hong Kong and it was right around the time when cable TV first came into Vogue and, um, I've opened restaurants in New York, Florida, Los Angeles, and, and San Francisco <laughs> and, So I knew a lot of the people in the industry, and I'm watching Wolfgang Puck have have a TV show on cable, and Jeremiah Towers, and Mario Batali, and so they had all these regional people that were being represented, and I thought, you know what, there's nobody doing anything for people who hunt and fish. So there was a gentleman by the name of Charlie West who um, had a he had an office, uh, and he was a, a production company out of Emeryville, California, in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so this was before email, texting, and all that stuff. So I actually wrote him a, I'm on this 15-hour plane ride. And so I jotted down a few ideas and sketched him out a letter and sent it off to him. And a couple of weeks later, I get a call from him. And he's like, hey, John McGannon, yes, hi, uh, this is Charlie West. Uh, I've received your documentation, and um, you're you're really not going to believe this, but um, about a week before I got this proposal from you, I had just signed a contract with the Outdoor Life Network to do an entire series of outdoor cooking TV shows, and I had absolutely no idea how it was going to get done. So obviously, I wasn't the only one who was thinking about this. I mean, the timing just kind of evolved to say, uh, "I think, I think we sh- somebody should be doing something about this." Subsequently, um, about uh, three weeks later, I found myself up on Orcas Island in the middle of the San Juan Islands off of Puget Sound and wrote and um, hosted. Fifteen TV shows. Wow,
1: wow, that's and awesome. have opened
0: what thirteen restaurants in your time, and I've uh, opened thirteen yeah, in in New York, Florida, L.A., San Francisco, and Hong Kong. Wow, and um, so yeah, I've been able to, and that was enough. I did I did the restaurant sure. things for twenty two years. Yeah, and um, and that's uh, that's probably more than the normal life expectancy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've always thought the food industry
1: and customer service is one of the hardest things to do. I just when you go out to dinner and you watch you know, people and, you know, service and all that, it's just, you can never make everybody happy, right? Yeah. And, and uh, so you're, you're always trying to find a bandwidth of people that you can keep happy. But I've always thought that that industry was one that is just got to be so difficult to manage.
0: Well, it's, it, it's incredibly hard to manage because you're dealing with people, first of all. And secondly, then you're, you know, I've, I've opened a lot of restaurants, not, I've never owned one of them. I've always been either executive chef or consulting chef, and there's a reason why nine out of ten close, and the amount of capital and we're kind of getting off the subject, but uh it's it's a ridiculously hard uh area to be successful in um because there are there's there's so many obstacles and mm-hmm. there there's so many variables and you're and you're dealing with people, and it has to be a passion based I you know, we are sitting here and we're talking about all this stuff this is all. This is all passion-based. It's what we love. It's what we do. It's what we love. It's why we. And and not everybody, especially. I opened six restaurants in in Southern California in the L.A. area. And let's face it, the, if you're in the restaurant business, you're you have not achieved your level of success to become a movie star, or a singer, or whatever it is, other than becoming a, you know, a waiter or a bartender. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but. Uh, it's, it's, it's very hard to, uh, to, to pass on your passion to, to everybody that you need in order to run a successful seven day a week, you know, 18 hour a day operation. Repeating
2: the exact same dish every time. So everybody has the same experience.
0: Sure. So crazy. So anyway, I've, I've been lucky and I've been able to blend my, my two passions and, my my love for um, for haute cuisine. I have a degree from the Culinary Institute in Hyde Park, New York, and have had the fortunate opportunity to work with some of the leading culinary people in the in the country. And uh, and for that, I'm I'm forever grateful. Yeah. And and also now I'm all, you know and I'm sharing that with all our our fellow hunters and anglers and and hopefully making their lives a little bit better, which is uh, very gratifying unto yeah. itself.
1: Yeah, so kind of getting into that, um, I was doing a little research about some of your publications. You know, you said you're a life member of Rocky Mountain Elk, and so you do the Carnivore's Kitchen. Right. Um, Jason provided me a uh, Mule Deer Foundation magazine, which had you in there for the cuisine elevation, I believe, Mm -hmm. and then um, Outdoor News, Taste of the Wild. So um, in terms of publications, you know, you do a lot of writing. Um, You know, is that a passion as well that you enjoy sharing well, that's another, with, sure, with that's another vehicle. Sure, um, that's
0: another vehicle, and yeah, I've 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 written for Peterson's Hunting Magazine, for Eastman's, for you know a, a host of of other uh, publications, and it's just another way of of sharing sharing my passion and um, my little subtitle, which is the relentless pursuit to achieve the extraordinary, and whether that's in domestic meats and you know uh, haute cuisine in French restaurants or. Um, you know, elk backstraps. Uh, it's still, it's still same, the same one in the you know one in the same.
2: Mm-hmm. I still remember one of your articles that I read <clears throat> when I was when we were just first met, and there was a picture of you and a grouse and like a twenty two pistol, and you had that grin on your face, and then the whole article was basically kind of wrapped around that experience, and I was like, I still remember that to this day, thinking, hey, I know that guy. Oh, this is gonna be good. He's gonna make something fantastic. I wish I was on that trip with him. Man, that would have been
0: some good eats. It was it was good eats, yeah. No uh lots of uh those are those are the little uh the coins, you know, that you get when you're out there in, in God's country and you're you're up there with nobody else and you know, I was I was on a horseback as I recall that trip. And uh that was at about ten thousand five hundred feet up in the Colorado Rockies and yeah, it's just, it's just one of those memories. We had, we had some grouse dinners. At Nothing the, better than high
1: mountain grouse. Yeah. Well, you know, come Excellent on, guys. Eats right there. You know,
2: when we're up in the mountains, for some strange reason, you know, mountain house tastes good. I don't even know how that happens. Yeah. But I know from uh, being at barbecues with, with John or just being out and doing it just like, Lucas, when you showed up on my hunt this last time and it was some dry-aged elk steaks, Man, I'd been I'd been eating pretty crappy for quite a few days, and when you showed up with that, I thought I, I could have given you a hug and a kiss, but I didn't want to say that out loud. <laughs> you may have given me a hug, but uh, <laughs> a little light on the kiss.
1: <laughs> so, on the publications, John, is it? Are you typically writing monthly for um, different? Um, you know, organizations, or are you on a schedule where they ask you to write, or is yeah, it...
0: I, I usually do, I'm I'm doing six to seven publications for the Elk Foundation, six to seven for the <laughs> Mule Deer. Uh, I also have uh, uh, my guest chef appearances on the on the Sporting Chef with, uh, with my good buddy Scott Layseth on the Sportsman's Channel on uh, on Comcast. So, okay. in fact, we'll be uh, I think in April we're going to be shooting a couple more. And we'll we'll go in and blow out ten or fifteen little little episodes. That's a for for anybody interested in in outdoor cooking. Um, Scott Show is is really a, a unique. It's almost a magazine style. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but mm-hmm. um, Scott's like the, the he's he's the host, and then he throws it to a wide variety of of guest chefs, and it's everybody from somebody down you know some uh, I, and I forget all these people's names, but you know, you got, you have, you have, you have people down in the Southeast and then you have uh, C C-dub who's doing, uh, something out of Texas. And then you have a guy who's up in uh, Montana and then I'm over here in the Bay area. And so there's a a wide variety of, uh, of tastes and approaches. And, uh, it's, uh, Melissa Bachman is, uh, is also on there. And, uh, so yeah, you get a good variety, and it's not just listening to one person speak over and over and over, which becomes a little, little gray at sometimes.
1: So based on um, kind of getting into, I guess the root of our discussion, if you had to pick one game meat the rest of your life to prepare, you know what what would be your favorite game meat? If you had to only choose one going forward to prepare,
2: man, throw him under the bus. Yeah, no, the doubt. guy from no the doubt. kitchen yeah. that has to have okay, it. Okay, so all. let's
0: say you can have okay, it all. But so if you a could a prepare <laughs> one, what would it be? What's your favorite? <laughs> I, I took you out of that one there, John. Okay, so <laughs> so I'll, re- I'll 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 hit you back with an equal one. Uh, sea urchin. Sea oh, urchin. Oh, okay. So no, that, I'm only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> although although I could I I could do pretty well on uni. Um, one, one meet that I would have to do. Um, you know, that's almost impossible to answer. I, I, I go and I apply for probably six to seven States every year. And, uh, and I, of course I, I'm in California, so I have uh, opportunities there and, you know, um, I I, I I don't know if I could even answer that because it would. It is would, that
2: like saying which is your favorite whiskey?
0: Say yeah, or which is your favorite child? Uh, okay, so yeah, oh, oh so yeah. It, we I'm don't not wanna, going there. Nobody wants to go there. <laughs> so it's yeah. That okay, w- let
2: me e- make it easy for you. Let's talk about a. Let's talk about deer, elk, or sheep. You know, I killed a sheep. You killed a sheep last few years. Um, I contacted you. I'm like, hey, hey. I got a sheep. What do I need? You, next thing you know, three or four days later, there's a box in my mail with some, uh, some rub.
0: Accoutrements.
2: Yeah, that exactly. was, that was pretty awesome. <laughs> well, so
0: gift
1: package. Isn't so, that
0: amazing? Uh, okay. Well, I'll just stop you there because the, um, I, I, yes, I've been one of the fortunate people in California to have drawn uh, California desert sheep. Oh, and then by the way, then my son drew it, uh, you know, four years later, which nobody's going to be happy about, but I know, because I applied for that exact same tag
2: the same year that he drew. And how many points did he have? I had max.
0: I think he only had four. Yeah, but I put him in. I put him in um, to the marbles, which was the only unit that actually had a random tag that year. And that's how we wound up getting it. So it has
1: it had the most that, tags anybody, that year. Actually, yeah. Has
0: that ever been done? No, no. It's, never, it's never been father, done. Father son, that. father son combination we, we for are, Desert we are, California. We are the only father son. And I, you know, I just finished the ISE show in Sacramento, and that's have awesome. have have worked with with the fishing game there for many many years, doing lots of donated uh, meals for the governor's tags and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, so I was, uh, it was confirmed that we were the only father son to have ever successfully harvested a California desert sheep in the state's history. Wow.
2: That's pretty awesome, isn't it?
0: That's cool. I and mean, both of
2: those Rams, I, we'll have to take a picture of his booth so you can yeah, put I'll that put up that for on everybody the, I'll to put see. I'll put that on the show notes Because he's sure. also got a couple of smoker blacktails that are bigger than anything I've ever shot, which is ridiculous. But,
0: but back to the, back to the sheep. Back to the sheep. Isn't it amazing? Number one, they, these are the most amazing creatures on the planet, and there's a reason why the passion for the Wild Sheep Foundation and and the you know, Full Curl Society and everybody that has to do with with wild sheep is so ridiculously passionate. When you are, first of all, when you're up in their country, it is the most unbelievable uh, environment that you that you you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And then two, how the hell do they grow those horns? <laughs> they're, they're they're eating nothing. Yeah. There is nothing for them to eat. So I mean from And when a, you
2: grab onto those horns for the first time as as a hunter, or even if you found a set,
0: those suckers are heavy. Oh. Holy cow. Big big time, yeah. They're mat. they're just mass. Yeah. They're 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 big time, and and then you sit and go, okay, I'm up here. I might as well be on the moon. And you look around, going, okay, there's no groceries. There's <laughs> there's no water, and no groceries. How the heck do they do they amass this? I mean, it's it's just one of those phenomenons of nature. Then you go, and now now you're going now we're dealing with the meat. Yeah. and it is the most subtle it almost bland because because they of their diet or lack thereof so it's it was it was really really I, I was i was i was amazed as to how mild and delicate and i mean these things are living on the side of cliffs
2: yeah you talk about an, an animal is what they eat and a lot of times that flavor comes out in, you know, like you talked about an apple-fed whitetail or right. a grain-fed beef or whatever. You know, I found that too with, with my bighorn sheep that I got. Um, you sent me the seasonings, and what I did is after I dry-aged them and er- everything, I cut them into little medallion-sized bites, seasoned them both sides, hit them on the grill really hot, flip, flip, a couple minutes put them on a plate, let them rest for another couple of minutes and then literally ate them like hors d'oeuvres. And it was so mild. And mm-hmm. so it, it was hard to explain because I was telling people, I said, well, just so you guys know, this is a famous, famous ram that you're eating. And they're like, what? I'm like, well, it was on TV. And, uh, of course it's, the only one I've ever shot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> famous but people, to me. Yeah. But people were like, man, that was just amazing. Of course, and we ate the whole thing and people still today are like, Hey, so when are we going to have some more of that Ram? I'm like, mm, yeah, I got, I got 19 points in quite a few States. I'm thinking within the next 10 years, maybe we might get another one.
0: Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Well, and, and the, and the other thing is, is that the magnificence of this animal is, is all in, in its, in its headgear. Because the bodies, when, when you're all done, Small. said and done, there's not a whole lot of meat coming off of those. So the musculature of these animals to be able to do the acrobatics that mm-hmm. they do up and down cliff faces is ridiculously impressive. I mean, they're, they're, not a, they're not that big of an animal, and most of their body weight is you know, from their shoulders forward. So how did you, how, what was your favorite
2: preparation of your bighorn sheep? How did you like to prepare it? What was, what was the one dish that you just went, holy cow.
0: Well, okay, so because by the time you're all said and done and you're boning out this animal and, and you know, you got to, you, we boned it out right on the hill as we're on the side of a 2,500-foot shale slide, um, I wanted to make sure that I got the most out of it. So, of course, I packed out the heart, the liver, the, the kidneys, and every, all edible parts were, were packed out. And I made a bunch of pate. Mm-hmm. I, I made terrine. So this way I mixed it with a little bit of pork, and I used the liver, and I used everything. This way I could extend the experience. Yeah. And um, so I I was able to share a whole bunch of that with a, a whole lot of people who might not otherwise have had ever had the chance to... To, to taste it or experience it, or wow. say, "Oh yeah, yeah. I, I I had some I had some desert bighorn." Well, That's most
1: people, let alone, never draw a cheap tag in their life, yeah. let alone can say that they've actually had it, you know, prepared for them. But I've heard that like dull sheep is some of the best meat. The guys will cook it right on the mountain, and they say, of course, anything on the mountain, like you said, a mountain house is good on the mountain. But they say that dull sheep is is one of the best. You know, sheep, but I've never, I've never had dull sheep, so I wouldn't know what, what it tastes like. Well, I
0: think we all, we, we, the three of us should basically coordinate and and start. We're in a place right now that we can, I'm sure, find somebody <laughs> who can help us uh, organize uh, such a thing, like a dull sheep hunt. Is that where I you do like have kinda going? my, like a, like I do dull, have
2: my Powerball tag. You know, well, my lottery well, oh, ticket. Oh, I
0: bought I bought one before I left California. So, you know, well, we, we might do I need all to, be in. <laughs> do I
2: need to give you a buck now so that I'm in on it so I don't
1: have to share. Well they're giving away twenty two sheep tags this weekend. So <laughs> no and there's and, like
0: six or seven dolls in there. And so. This this is a um, this is a ridiculous great opportunity. So I've been doing this, I think they say they said this is the eleventh year, and I've I've been doing this the, the Mule Deer National I, I was doing it when it was still headquarters in reno m d f yeah back in what I probably fifteen years ago, but the way that they do it here in the state of Utah right now is really ingenious one it's helped support this this convention, which is vitally in today's environment is vitally important to get the word out as to what hunters and conservation really are and not what the non hunting conservation community perceives it to be. Yeah. And they have this situation here where they have eliminated a lot of the governor's tags which as you know goes to raising funds in each one of the states for the specific species. In Utah, they they now have a raffle and for $5 a raffle ticket, you could you could apply for 200 different individual hunts. Yeah. For and and I think I'm I, I, I think I'm pretty accurate on this. I think Utah has more huntable species than any other state in the United States.
2: Well, they had it's, they had cougar, they had elk, they had deer, they had sheep,
0: multiple species,
2: animal,
1: of sheep, multiple species of yeah, turkey, turkeys. Yep.
0: Mountain I mean, Arizona's lion, bear, got 13, moon, thirteen. Yeah. Bison, mountain goat. Yeah. Mountain goats. Yeah. yeah they're just uh, they're, about
2: everything underneath the moon.
0: Yeah. No. And and. You have to be here in order to get that. They're five dollar raffle tickets, which okay, everybody can throw down five bucks. So you don't have to be a guy writing a two hundred thousand dollar check to go and you know, and you're you're giving it back to the people, which I think is great, plus it is an incentive. And from the numbers that I understand, it's between twenty five and thirty thousand people will attend this show in the next three days. Well, and you know, I mean Surprise, surprise. I told myself a couple
2: years ago when I came, I was only going to spend 40 or 50 bucks, you know, $70 later. This year I said, oh, I'm only going to try to, I'm on a limited budget trying to cut back. <laughs> What did I tell
1: you? One hundred and ten bucks. It was one hundred and
2: ten dollars yeah. by the time you know you go down the list. You're like, oh, oh, I'd like to do that. Oh, oh I would like.
1: Oh, I could
0: do. You know, yeah. next
2: thing you know, you're click, click, click,
1: click, click, click. Yeah.
0: Well, you won't be crying the blues when you when you draw one of those tags. You're right. Exactly. So I won't be the cheapest tag that I've ever. Uh, and worn. You're right
1: for five bucks. I mean, we were nope. looking at the odds on the way up here. I was looking at uh, last year's um, breakdown, and I mean, some of them for you know the premier deer and elk tags. I mean, it it's a point. One to point zero whatever percent odd, but at the same time, somebody's got to do it.
0: Somebody has to win. Somebody wins them, right? I, and I'm why can't lucky. it be one of us? That's I'm feeling lucky. That's what I've always said. Well, you can't win if you don't play. Ex- absolutely, you can't for win a lottery sure. and for if you don't play. $110, bucks. I'll, I'll give you the hundred and ten bucks. How's that?
2: I think I'm gonna keep mine and just go ahead that direction, John. I appreciate the thought, okay.
0: but you know how many did you put in for so we might well i I'll, I'll be um I'll be doing that see on Thursday at the show here I'm by myself, so it's kind of hard just to sneak away sneak away so i'll I'll wait for support and if support shows up you'll be okay I'll just, you know i' I'll, I'll, I'll be right back i'll make don't my, worry
2: guys I'll be right back I'll, just ten minutes
0: I'll, yeah, you guys help yourself to some chili,
1: yeah,
2: yeah yeah yeah, yeah,
1: chili was excellent, so back on the discussion, you know, around dry. So we talked a little bit about dry aging meat and of course it's, it's neat to see how the tradition It you know, John taught Jason, you know, this, this essentially preparation of meat. And that's one of the ways I figured out how to dry age meat after doing some research. But Jason always did that. He I would go over and he'd take it out. He'd take the paper towels, he'd throw them away, he'd put new paper towels in and it was draining that meat out or the blood out. But, um, you talked a little bit about waterfowl and this process, but you know what is the science, I guess, behind, like for, for elk or for deer, for, for larger four-legged animals, what, what is the tactic around dry aging meat? Well, it's,
0: it's, it's basically the same thing. So wildlife, um, they have an excessive amount of capillary blood, and they need that blood because they are escaping from predators. The antelope are running 60 miles an hour from you know from coyotes and, and wolves and, and mountain lions. And the same thing with the deer and the elk. And and so in order for their bodies to be able to perform, they have they have developed this excessive amount of capillary blood. Just like the ducks and the geese are flying at twenty thousand feet to do what their migration calls for, your body assimilates and, and has acclimated over the millennials. Of, of what you need, uh, unlike, you know, a heifer or a steer that's sitting around and not doing anything. So the, the, the whole, the whole, that's why game meat is so dark compared to, you know, beef or, or domestic uh, meats uh, because of all this excessive amount of blood. And it's the blood that is required to run 60 miles an hour for five miles and to, to run up and down a 10,000-foot mountain. And so it's the same premise. It's the capillary blood is what you eat. So if you're eating uh, an, an old mule deer who's been eating buckbrush and sage up on the side of the mountain and you consume that flesh in its overly saturated state, it's going to taste like buckbrush and sage because all the broken down byproduct of what that animal has consumed is going to be present in the capillary blood. So it, it, it's really a very simple concept. You, you you If your meat is aggressive in flavor, it's because it's too wet. So you want to dry it out. Most people, we are in a society where we marinate and soak everything, mm-hmm. and when it doesn't do what we want it to do, let's then we add have, more soy sauce. Then we then we have to do the habanero teriyaki honey sake soy glaze thing, and and so you know it's it's the big cover up. Well, let's let's really understand why we're doing what we're doing. As I said earlier, I'm a why guy. Yeah. And, and so there's a lot of people who know how to do things. Not so many know why they're why, doing yeah. it. So if you know why, then you can adjust. You can adjust based on what you're dealing with. And if you're dealing with a piece of meat that is overly saturated with a piece of blood, soaking it in salt water, and regardless of how many times you tell the same story, it's not going to change. Salt water, salt is not going to miraculously suck the the blood out of your meat, making it good and putting you know good stuff in its place. If you have a piece of meat that is completely saturated in blood, and you put it in essentially what is a brine, a brine interacts. The salt brine interacts with the protein content of that muscle tissue, creating a matrix locking in the moisture. So now you all you're doing is locking in a blood saturated piece of meat interesting yes the the water will become red because there's so much of blood that it's that it will appear as though it's it's bleeding it out but the osmosis thing doesn't work plus would you would and when i you know i've been doing these shows for 22 years and i've heard every antidote from as you can imagine um would you ever and i usually just stop and say okay would you ever take a prime rib or a perfectly good two-inch piece of ribeye and soak it in salt water. And, and, of course, nobody would ever even consider doing that. And and so that's what you're doing. I mean, the breasts of a bird or the back of an animal are the equivalent to, you know, a piece of ribeye. Yeah. That's interesting because there's, there's always
1: been a stigma to oh, me yeah. that if you've got a piece of meat that's, you know, got a lot of blood in it or if you're going to brine a turkey that... It's drawing that blood out. of That it's like the salt is replacing, you know, the blood in the in the in the meat. But no. you read that. All, I mean, you go online and you put briny. I mean, that that is you see that all the time.
2: Well, that's and people it, that are it, writing things that they don't know. Well, correct. Well, it's, 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 it's proving the theory it's, wrong. It's, it's science.
0: What, it's science. Um, And and it's you know if you tell the story enough. You know, you yeah, actually start, start you, to start, you start to believe yeah, it. Yeah. So a brine, brining on a turkey has nothing to do with extracting out blood. Um, if okay. you if you salted, even if you just straight salted. So back in the day before refrigeration, uh, salt was traded pound for pound with gold because it was the only way that you could actually preserve your 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 food source in order to sustain life. And um, uh, he, he, the salt was there to extract the moisture, not the blood. And it, was, it had nothing to do with the blood. The blood was basically just drained out. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you racked a bunch of meat, the salt was there to cure and to keep the, um, the, the, the bacterial uh, growth down. Okay. And and not to, you know, not to... Oh, not to uh, draw the blood out. It's, it's going to pull the bad stuff out and put the good stuff in. No, it, it's,
1: it, it just doesn't work that way. What else I find interesting about dry aging meat is when you start the process, you've got the color of the meat. And then like you said, when you're done after two or three days, I mean, it is that bright red veal color. And I mean, I mean, there's not any liquid in it. I mean, it is just a bright red. I mean, it's you almost want to cut it up and eat it
0: raw because it looks... And, and it, it looks so good. yeah, so sweet. So, yeah. <clears throat> years ago, I was doing the, um, uh, I, w- I was volunteered to do the dinners <laughs> at Grizzly Island uh, for the governor's tags. Uh, they had two Tule elk tags.
2: Biggest elk in California come out there.
0: Yes, and most expensive as well. Exactly. And uh, uh, this particular year, uh, the two people that were the auction winners were two friends of mine. And they knew that I had a, a, a kitchen in San Francisco. And so they said, OK, John, in addition to you know, doing our dinner, how about you just take care of this meat? So I had, I had an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old tule elk that I brought down <laughs> to the kitchen that I had. And we had a secondary walk-in behind our regular catering walk-in that we were using. And I, I, hung, I hung those two elk in there for 35 days.
1: Wow, bone in everything, just
0: hung up, skinned qu- quarters, just quarters, skinned and quarters, and there was literally blue mold growing on the outside of the, of this meat. But once I once I cut all that off, the smell of that meat was almost sweet. Wow, because it was so pure, and all of that blood, and it was the color of veal, mm-hmm. and these are. Eleven and thirteen year old animals. Sure, and and when and I butchered it up for the, for these two friends of mine, and to this day they still say that that is the by far the finest piece of meats that they've ever eaten. Proper and the,
2: preparedness, and these, proper
0: preparation, and these, and these are people who uh, have and do hunt all over the world, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, price was never it was never an object, and it, and it was. Um, it was, it was just amazing it, I, I was like giddy when i finally when we peeled off that glaze on the outside and just the the sm, it, it it smelled like flowers i mean it was it was so pure and mm-hmm. so beautiful yeah uh, no
1: i resemble that smell when you, when you dry age good elk meat it is it's got that sweet kind of tonal smell to it then mm-hmm. and you know what totally so different. many
2: people and probably a lot of people that are listening to this right now are going what i've never experienced that Man, when you take that back strap or the tenderloins out of an animal and you properly dry age it, and then you do, if you have to trim off a little bit, because that does happen, you lose a little bit every once in a while, no big deal. You trim that off and you start cutting it into nice medallion sizes to put, you're just like, holy cow. And then I love your seasonings. You got a lot of great dry rubs. Just a little bit of a dry rub on both sides and right on the grill. Holy cow. When it comes off, I've had people that, of course, I live in California. Surprise, surprise. We all live in California. We've had people at our at our table eating that don't agree with us. Just life. So I lie to them. That's just the way it is. They ask, <laughs> oh, what's this? I'm like, oh, it's veal. Or, oh, this is... Uh, top choice, premium cut. You know what? I have had so many compliments on the meat that I've prepared. And, like, one of my buddies said, don't tell my wife that you're cooking dove breasts. And, you know, I mean, dove breasts, I do the same thing with them. I dry age them. Takes a long, you know, sometimes you know, two weeks. You know? And everybody's like, oh my God, two weeks? That's ridiculous. Well, guess what? Told this one lady, oh yeah, it's, you know, it's just a little medallion of Meat. And she didn't even question it. She ate it. She's like, "That was the best meat I've ever had." I'm like, "I didn't even tell her what it was. I was yeah, just better not, off not telling." Better not. It. I probably yeah. would have got thrown at. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> but it's fun. So on the subject. So we've talked about preparation. So, John, fact or fiction? When you sear meat, you know, instantly a minute on each side, and then set it up on the rack and let it cook. You know, maybe on a on a lower temperature. Does searing meat actually? Hold in the actual juice and, the, and constrict the fibers, or is that a fact, or is it a because f- I've heard both sides of this argument on searing?
0: Well, I've i uh, i I'm familiar with both both uh, uh, hypotheses. Um, for me, um, searing searing is the the caramelization of the natural sugars found within the protein. This is why I'm a fan of dry age, uh, dry rubs versus wet marinade. So if you were to use a wet marinade on a piece of meat, number one, most of those are, uh, have a large percentage of sugar. That sugar is there because when you saturate a piece of meat, you theoretically cannot caramelize it because it's actually being cooked via the steam generated from from the marinate. So if you're going to go through the process of the timely process of taking care of your meat properly, dry aging it properly, then if you were to take that and now you what you're trying to do is get it down to its maximum culinary potential and then if you were to now marinate it in something, you're completely diluting all of its natural culinary potential. Subsequently, when you soak a piece of meat in a liquid and then you, you try to cook it by means of dry cooking on a grill or in a pan or in an oven, you're you're now cooking a large percentage of that meat via the steam generated from the the liquid that it's absorbed. so you're you're actually saturating the natural integrity of that meat as opposed to cooking it via a dry cooking method which one naturally caramelizes the, the proteins. And number two has a dry cooking method which evaporates the internal moisture, subsequently concentrating the natural flavor. So, one, you have a maximizing potential of the flavor. The other one, you have a dilution of that flavor. So, this may be a little more scientific, but hmm. when you think about it, it's, it makes perfectly logical no, it does. sense. So that's why I'm I'm, a, I'm much more of a big fan of, and I have people that have been coming up to me for decades saying, "Why don't you have a marinade?" This is the reason why I
1: don't have a marinade. And that makes sense because the marinade's going to soak into the meat when you're going to cook it. That liquid has to go somewhere. The liquid so heats point, up. It's going to heat up and then steam, vaporize steam, where it's going to basically cook it from the inside out. I, I don't, I don't want my backstrap steamed. Yeah. No, that's that. So I guess to the flip to that. Um, you know, slow cooking, low temp over a longer period of time. I mean, if you, is that a tactic that you use or is that something, is that to, is that another
0: way to maybe hide a a bad cut of meat? No, not at all. That has to do with, with the different cuts. So the tender cuts, your, your, your back straps, your top, your top round, your top sirloin, your, your fillets, those are all tender cuts. Those are hot and fast and dry. They the the tougher cuts, your shoulders, your shanks, your bottom round, your eye round, your heel, those are slow and wet. So the the the, the tougher cuts slow and wet. The tender cuts hot and fast. Look at that's that. Good. We're
2: both looking at each other. Go, damn. Okay. Maybe that's maybe that's the reason that shoulder didn't taste as good when I put it on that grill hot and fast. Well, and and and
0: here's I a pro- still liked it here, by the way. Here's here's a problem that you have when you don't. Um, when, when you don't fabricate your own meat and you just leave it to somebody else and it comes back, stew, chops, roast. Okay. So just because yeah. it's a big muscle doesn't mean it's suitable for, you know, to be a, to be a roast, a roast elk or a roast deer. It, you know, the bottom round is a big, is a, is the largest muscle in the leg. And that's, that should be made into, into stew or pot roast or, you know, a, a slow wet braising process. So, you know, understanding on my website at wildeats.com, um, I have, I have a documents page and I have a bunch of PDF files and one of them is the, uh, the hunter's meat map. So I've taken basically a skeletal chart of big game animals and identified where the mussels come from, what they're called. And what are the best cooking techniques for each one of those? So now you actually have answers instead of, you know, you're out hunting and you're going, okay, well, that's a big, that looks like a big, that's a big chunk. All right, that's a roast. And then all of a yeah. sudden now you get an eye round or a bottom round that should be cooked in a in a braising liquid for three hours and you try to roast it on your barbecue and now you go to serve it to somebody and it's as it's, it's like chewing on it's a like piece rubber. of rubber. Yeah. So identifying identifying what it is that you're, that you're that you're cooking and what are the you know the the actual proper culinary techniques for each one of those muscle groups is is very significant
2: yeah boy talk about a good thing you know to know especially for new hunters and people that are really looking for the true organic experience which I know a lot of the audience out there could be those people um, going on to wild eats and getting that where you actually have We'll call it a roadmap, roadmap of the animal, mm-hmm. yeah. so that when you shoot your animal, and if they're doing it all themselves, they're hanging it, they're aging it, they're doing all this stuff themselves, this gives them a great source.
0: And and then we, we have all <laughs> kinds of other, we have videos, and I have um, uh, a history of uh, recipes and articles that I've written for various magazines, as well as, um, you know, documentation and you know, good information as well as email. And so if, if somebody has a question and something's not doing what they want it to do, you can always drop me a line and we'll point them in the right direction.
1: Very cool. So just kind of in closing, I guess, um, we talked about, you know, wildeats.com, but when someone goes on there, you've got a lot of, um, rubs, you've got a lot of different, um, you know, products that you, uh, market. Um, you know, what, what would someone expect when they go on their website? What would they see, and, and is there, What are there other locations where they can buy these products, or is it strictly online?
0: Um, well, we have a few. We have a few locations, um, mostly back in, uh, in, the, in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, Sacramento. Um, but, but largely, uh, we, I've designed the packaging to be very um, shippable. So they're little. I have them in three-ounce um, resealable pouches. Uh, I could ship um, up to eight pouches anywhere in the country for under six dollars. So it's it's quite cost effective, no breakage. Um, our our line of rubs. Um, I have uh, I have six rubs currently. I have our famous control burn chili blend, which you guys sampled today. Um, that is uh, is yum, a blend yum. of five different yeah. five different peppers and chilies. Um, a three ounce pack of the seasoning has the recipe on it and will produce six quarts of chili. So That's a good of, a lot, lot of a lot, chili. A lot, <laughs> probably more than most
1: of us would need. But
0: Well, but if you're going to spend, you know, three, four hours cooking something, you might yeah, as well get the most, good... the most bang for your buck. Absolutely. Uh, I have a um, uh, Wild Eats Burger Dust, which is a mild pepper rub with roasted garlic and onions. And I was, I was working on this for, for burgers and then realized, okay, so what can you not put garlic and onions on? So <laughs> it's, that's, a, that's a pretty versatile one. Uh, we have our San Francisco seafood rub, um, which I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, blackening, the Cajun style of blackening for fish. However, um, a mouthful of cayenne pepper doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me. And uh, sure. I don't use cayenne in any of our blends. Um, so I replace the cayenne with ancho chili that has a much sweeter, milder kind of a flavor. So when you put it on a piece of salmon or halibut or shrimp or scallop, you can actually taste what it is that you're that you're eating. Um, I have our uh, lemon, garlic, and sage rub with fennel, which is really outstanding on um, on all your white meat, your poultry, pork, upland birds. Uh, that comes with a terrific um, brine recipe um, that, that really locks in the moisture. Now. We, we talked earlier about wet versus dry. My views on, on the dry is for red meats. White meats, you know, everybody, everybody brines their turkey for Thanksgiving and then the rest of the year eats um, dried chicken or pheasant or chucker or quail. Mm-hmm. Brining is great as far as white meats go and really help to lock in the moisture and, and uh, create that matrix that I was discussing earlier. Um, Then I also have a a waterfowl rub, which is a ginger, citrus, and pepper rub that has a very light, refreshing, uh, almost almost Caribbean like like flavor profile that helps to um, lighten up the the aggressive flavors of ducks and geese. Uh, And uh, and then uh, we have our world famous juniper berry and peppercorn steak rub. That's the one that I I was going
2: to say. That's one of my favorites. I was waiting for that one.
0: Yeah. No. That's uh, we've we've made lots and lots of friends with that over the years. Yeah. So. I was introduced
1: to to your um, rubs and seasonings through Jason. Jason brought some over to me and said, "Hey, try this out." So the juniper peppercorn was the one that stood out to me, which I don't think it lasted more than probably a couple months in my house, but just it, it adds an element to we predominantly cooked it with elk meat, but it just added a different element to the meat that didn't have it just using a standard you know salt and pepper lemon gar you know garlic salt type mix or garlic powder.
0: Well, you know, in formulating anything, uh, any dish or any ingredient or any compound uh, flavorings, it, it's all about balance. And uh, a couple of years ago, I, um, I, I, I developed what I call the culinary compass when, on one of my articles in Carnivore's Kitchen in the Bugle magazine. And it was to try to better describe to people that if you just taste something once and you don't like it, doesn't mean that you have to throw everything in the wind it means that something inside of that recipe or or those ingredients that you ate were a little bit out of line so it's kind of like sighting in your gun and basically in short um, all ingredients in a recipe can fall into four categories they're either a fat or an acid or a sweetener or a spice And whether it's a carrot or an onion or chili or, you know, a cilantro or whatever, you know, sour cream, um, wine, acid, everything has to do with balance. And so if something is a little bit too spicy, well, one, either add less spice or balance that out with something that would be sweet. And sweet doesn't mean necessarily honey or sugar. It could be roasted garlic or roasted onions or carrots or some other flavoring that falls into that category or if something is a little too rich well add a little acid you know if it's a way we use um, i use our red wine in our chili blend uh, to make our chili well there it's there for one the the flavor but it's also there because when you cook high levels of protein like wild game animals for five or six hours that gets significantly protein rich so in order to balance out that protein you 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 balance it out with some acid from the wine and then the whole thing comes off in a, in in this in this harmony and so uh, you know oh i i don't like that or i don't like this spice well you know when when we have when we have negative thoughts about what it is that we eat more than likely it's because we were exposed to something that was abusive and you could pick any everybody that's listening, and and you guys can vouch for this. Oh, I don't like I don't like cumin, or I don't like cilantro, or I don't like a specific A B C. And that's probably because at one point you were given such an overdose of it that it was so overwhelming that you said, yeah. Oh, no, no, I don't like that. Had kind of a bad it, experience. Yeah, it's no different than the than the you know than the guy who was invited over to his buddy's house. And his buddy shot an antelope in Wyoming in August and threw it in a cooler and then drove back to California three days and then gave it to his wife and said, here, cook this. And then invited a bunch of people over and they come over. And now this antelope has been so mistreated and the the temperature violations and bacteria and all the rest of that. So now she goes ahead and, and cooks it. And so the guest knows that You know, your buddy's wife is a great cook and going, hmm, okay. note to self, antelope sucks. Well, no, no, that's not the case. The case is, is that there there was a series of events that led up to this situation. So, you know, it's no different than saying, oh, 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 I don't like chili because, you know, uh, the, the last time I had chili, you know, somebody tripled the cumin that should have been in there. And now all of a sudden that became this aggressive You know, punch in the forehead. So understanding, understanding why we keep going back to why (laughs) the why, the why. Understanding why will will always allow you to adjust it to to make it work for yourself. Yeah, I think for me, and just to kind of close
1: out and closing remarks here, I think for me, one of the things that I can take away from this is I do have a better appreciation for why you know you do prepare certain cuts of meat the way you do, and the prime example is what you just said. I mean. The guy goes out and shoots his deer and he brings it home and they cut it up that night and, you know, they cook it. And, uh, normally is, you know, f- folks have a bad experience based on people not preparing and, and yeah. not only from the time the animal was harvested and getting it, you know, from farm to table, but the whole process in between, I mean, is so important. Uh, you know, we go up to Montana and elk hunt It's 70 degrees. We shoot an elk, right. Recover the elk get it hung and try to let it hang for at least two or three days, right, and try to get the meat to cool. And then you got to take it through Las Vegas, through Death Valley, right, in September, which it's still usually, you know, 90-plus degrees. So it's that whole process from the time you get it down to the time it hits your plate. Um, it's so critical. And I've seen so many people waste meat. I've seen people oh yeah not even hang them in, in walk-ins, just, you know, skin an antelope, leave it on all quarters and keep it in the shop for 10 days thinking that's the best thing for it. Mm. And, uh, Oh, it's the, the meat's bone sour at that point. This is sad.
2: There was one comment in here and I know we're kind of running a little long right now, but temperature awareness, you know, I mean, hello, you leave a Cape on an elk, boy, that animal is hot. And especially if it's a warm day, California, you know, I, I got lucky. I drew a Tule elk tag, Freaking 80 degrees, you know, shot an elk. Man, the most important thing to me after I got the elk down was we got to get this skin off. We got to get the meat in a cooler somewhere and get it, drop that temperature down. Because, boy, the last thing I wanted was to lose any meat. And to me, that's the prize. You know, the horns and the cape. Yeah, I'm going to have that on my wall. I'm going to remember that forever. But every day when I take a package of meat out... And I go, okay, well, in two weeks or in six days, I'm gonna eat this. I wanna know that it was properly taken care of in the beginning. And I know that's the reason so many people had such bad experiences with wild game meat.
0: Oh, because no, no here, here,
2: here I had a friend one time and he said, Oh, here, Jason, here's a turkey. Oh my god, that was the worst animal I'd ever eat. Who knows? You know, I mean, I never asked him. But I'm making a wild guess that he shot it, probably threw it in the back of the truck, probably drove around, showed everybody in the neighborhood it, and then two days later I ended up with the stupid thing. Mm-hmm. Just because he knew I like to cook wild game meat. But anyway.
0: No, most train
2: wrecks can
1: be traced <laughs> back to operator error.
2: <laughs> <That's a laughs> operator good point. error.
1: It's it's sad too, because in a lot of states, spoilage of meat is it's against the law, right? It's a legal mm-hmm. one if you don't take yeah. the appropriate amount of meat, but too, if you let an animal spoil, I mean, that's in a lot of states, it's against the law to do that. And it's so sad because it's so preventable.
0: And it should be. It's so easy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, cul- the culinary police need to go out there and check on, make sure that you're, you you're, you know what the danger zone is. You know how to get it down. Okay. Quick story up at Dye Creek, uh, which is a, a, a deer camp that I hunt up in uh, Northern California. One year we we have we have a, a generator in our camp. It's a it's a great place to to, to hunt deer. It happened to be ridiculously hot. It's 85 degrees. Got got a um, got a deer down. We had a generator and we have our we had some lights over the over the meat pole. So hung the deer up. Got got it skinned out. Of course, separated the shoulders. Uh, scored the back down down the spine. So the bones harbor the heat. Okay, so you have all of these dense properties of bone that, that hold the heat, that are surrounded by layers of, of muscle, more bone, muscle, more bone. So w- what you need to do is make sure that you expose all of that and, and simply cutting it open and exposing the spine, taking the shoulders and almost butterflying them back to, to expose the internal parts of the rib cage and, and, and basically then opening up the... the, the uh, the rib cavity, and then what I did was I had, a, I had a fan in our kitchen. So I took the fan, extension cord, out to the meat pole and took a wet towel and wiped the outside part of the deer down and basically created a wind chill factor to cool the, to cool the meat down. Hmm. So normally when you think of hypothermia, it's for us to try to survive. Well, in this case, I did a reverse hypothermia, and created a wind chill environment on this piece of meat to drop the temperature down as quickly as possible. Once I got it, once I got it down and it got cool enough over, uh, over the night that then, then I wrapped it in a game bag and put it in a sleeping bag. So you got it cool. Yeah, I've done that before. Because a sleeping bag, like a cooler, is not a cooler. And a sleeping bag is not a heater. It's a thermos. Yeah. So now I got the I got the temperature down and then it I needed to, it took me about a day to get it out but then I insulated that coldness to protect it from the heat. So it you know just like a cooler's not a cooler a sleeping bag is I, not a heater. I've done that I've done the sleeping bag thing which my wife
2: was totally pissed about because of course I used a nice sleeping bag to wrap my deer that I brought from Colorado but just like Lucas said I was going to drive through Vegas, through Bakersfield in September. I knew the temperatures were going to be super-duper hot. So it was nice and cool up at 8,000 feet. Got it nice and cooled down, put the sleeping bag over it, threw it in the back of the truck. Guess what? When I got home, it was perfect. There was... No blood or anything like that. My wife would never sleep in that sleeping
1: bag. Well,
0: that's all right.
2: It's okay.
1: She have doesn't it. have to. You can.
0: Now. <laughs> you got it, you, 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 know you got She's you probably got got forgot it. You right got a right now. full carcass back home that 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 <clears throat> she she ate and enjoyed for uh, for many meals to come. An amazing little side trick.
1: <laughs> John, it's been a pleasure uh, uh, having you. Pleasure's uh, mine. Yeah, I've. I know I've taken a lot away from our discussion today, and uh, I look forward to catching up with you more in the next couple of days. You're at booth 820. 820. At the Western Hunting Expo. Um, so drop by uh, John's booth. Try some, is it venison or elk chili? Uh, we got some uh, Colorado mule deer. Colorado mule deer chili. Um, and then, of course, a plethora of seasonings and spices uh, that we talked about. So Check him out on the
2: website.
1: Yeah, check them out on the website, wildeatsenterprises.com. There you go. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. John, take care, and uh, we'll catch you next time. There you go. Cheers. Hey, everyone. This is Lucas Paw, host of the RNA Outdoors podcast. Please check out Podbean and iTunes. If you have an iPhone or iPad, go to Podcasts app on your device, search for RNA Outdoors, and hit the purple subscribe button. When doing this, it'll automatically upload when new podcasts are loaded, and they will download into your queue. For Android users, you can access the podcast through Podbean, Stitcher, or just use our website, www.RNAoutdoors.com forward slash podcast. In addition, under the RNA Outdoors podcast channel, please leave a review and a five-star rating. These reviews help boost our popularity and outreach. You can also follow us on our social media outlets, Twitter at RNA Outdoors, Instagram at RodNArrowOutdoors, and Facebook, RNA Outdoors. All links are in the show notes as well. If you like what you've heard, we hope you'll pass along our channel to your friends and colleagues. Keep up the good fight. We cannot sit by and watch the public lands devoted to wildlife protection wither away. There's simply too much at stake. Make your voice heard, speak up, Get involved with conservation efforts and know that every little bit helps. As we say on the mountain, see you guys on the next ridge.